This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right. I imagine this is going to get some calls to the buzz line, and that's good. We encourage that. Our hot question of the day has to do with that story. Gordon and I were just talking about Amazon opening its first full-size cashier-less grocery store. You just go in, you are scanned, you pick up your eggs, your milk, whatever it is you're buying. You don't need to check out. You put it in your basket, your bag, whatever you've brought. Off you go, and you get charged for it. So that's taking it a step further. We wanted to ask you, self checkouts have become a major trend in the past few years when it comes to grocery stores. Many have implemented them in stores at major Canadian retailers. Do you use the self-checkout when shopping? And I suppose it's not just grocery stores. It could be drug stores, whether you're at Shoppers Drug Mart, London Drugs, any of those stores. Our question, do you use the self-checkout option when shopping? You can go to Twitter, at CKNW, at Jill Reports. You can call our buzz line, 604 604- 331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899. Simple yes or no. But if you vote no, well, even if you vote yes, you can tell us why. If you vote no, tell us why in the comments. So I fully admit, I use the self-checkout. I've been shamed a couple of times. So once at a grocery store, a lineup down the aisle for people to use the cashier. People were getting mad at the cashier, telling her to bring on more cashiers. She looked at them and said, there are no more cashiers. They then looked at the people, myself included, who were using the self-checkout, and one guy actually said shame. I'm not sure what you're shaming about when we're talking about technology, but let's get the conversation going. It is our hot question of the day. Do you use self-checkout options when shopping? Yes or no? Tell us why on the buzz line. You can vote on Twitter. Jill Bennett sitting in on the show today. A lot of talk about this so-called level playing field when it comes to the taxi industry. We've been talking about it for months before Uber and Lyft were cleared, as well as some other ride-sharing services were cleared to operate in the Lower Mainland in Metro Vancouver. Uh, but certainly it remains front and center. And we are joined now by the Surrey Board of Trade CEO, Anita Huberman, on the line. Anita Huberman, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Uh, tell us a bit about what you've announced or in, uh, along with some members of the taxi industry as far as getting to this level playing field. Well, this morning we held a press conference at the Surrey Board of Trade and uh, a, a number of uh, taxi industry members uh, were at, in that room uh, to call for a change in the public narrative for the taxi industry around partnership and innovation. We have released a petition today uh, to be sent to BC's Transportation Minister, Claire Trevina, asking for one priority item, and that is for the removal of archaic taxi boundaries, allowing the 2,500 taxis in Metro Vancouver to pick up and drop off anywhere in the Lower Mainland to serve the public better. Uh, the petition is at ipetitions.com. Uh, remove red tape for the taxi industry, and uh, we have until March 16th uh, to build more uh, momentum, more groundswell to cut this government red tape. Uh, There has been some opposition to this, uh, particularly from the Vancouver Taxi Association. Have you heard from that group? 
Well, we do hear from them off and on. I mean, this has been an ongoing position of the Surrey Board of Trade, as well as the BC Chamber of Commerce, uh, to have a level playing field for the taxi industry. And, uh, and of course, uh, we advocated for a, a thriving ride-sharing industry as well. We're in a transit and transportation crisis in Surrey and south of the Fraser, especially. We need ways, we need choices to get around. Uh, we need our taxi industry to be innovative. And, uh, and so if the Vancouver Taxi Association is uh, presenting some concerns about our ask, um, I ask them to consider, uh, you know, looking at ways around innovation and partnership uh, to remove uh, these archaic boundaries so that they're not driving back empty, deadheading after dropping off passengers. This is good for all of us. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Would you say, though, that that's the biggest issue as far as competitiveness and as far as the playing field not being level with taxis? Because there is also the issue of uh, Uber drivers, uh, I believe Lyft drivers as well. You can put in destination uh, when you're a driver in that you're only going in one direction, you're only going to one place, and there you're you're only open to people going in that direction as well. Are there not other things, though, that still give them a more competitive edge? Well, absolutely. And whenever you introduce uh, a new industry into the market, it's a journey. Uh, It's not successful, perfect, uh, right from the get-go. So, I mean, uh, we're doing this piece by piece, but this is a leadership opportunity for the BC government to do one good thing uh, for the taxi industry, and then we can work on all of those other things for both of those uh, industries to ensure level playing fields. I mean, there, there's a variety of issues that still have to be dealt with. Uh, is it odd to you or, or puzzling as to why we're talking about this now? We had, what was it, seven years. We knew that at some point, at least we hoped, that ride-sharing was going to be coming to the region. We were told the, the, the goalposts on the dates kept changing. Is it odd to you that we're just having this conversation now instead of having it before it came in? Well, that's a very good question. We've always actually been talking about it for the past seven years. Uh, we released our, our ride-sharing policy six years ago, talked about the level playing field for both ride-sharing and taxi industry, and um, but nothing has happened, which is why we need this groundswell of support for all residents, all businesses, to sign this petition by March 16th and uh, to allow the B.C. government, the transportation minister, to see uh, that uh, there's a leadership opportunity. Just remove these archaic boundaries for the taxi industry. Uh, it would be interesting to know as well, and I don't know if we have these numbers, uh, who is actually policing this? Because anecdotally, when you talk to cab drivers and even uh, spokespeople for the taxi associations, they, they, they fully admit it's not something, it's kind of what we turn a blind eye to in that, yes, deadheading is a thing and it's, it's not allowed, but a lot of taxis pick up people out of their jurisdiction and it happens every day. And I don't know that anyone's getting ticketed for it or getting caught doing it. So it doesn't seem like making it official that it's not illegal would be that big of a deal. Well, I think the perspective is that uh, there needs to be um, some type of level playing rules for both industries that are, that are visible. Um, I don't know about policing or accountability. Who has the resources to do that? I don't know in, in this economy. But uh, the legislation needs to uh, come from the B.C. government, uh, even though it may or may not be enforced. 
and uh, the taxi industry, uh, you know, they want to be able to abide by current legislation. So, um, you know, all we're asking is for the B.C. government to do this one thing in the short term uh, through this petition, and then we can deal with all of these other things uh, through this journey. Uh, we're also talking today about the uh, intermunicipal ride-hailing license and uh, Vancouver uh, trying to go ahead on that. And then, of course, Vancouver would be the one that would be the administrator of this license. There are concerns, even though Doug McCallum has said in the past he's on board with the idea, uh, that when the actual details are released, there's a possibility if cities or municipalities are allowed to opt out that city, uh, Surrey might be in that position. Are you concerned that the, the intermunicipal ride-hailing license might not to encompass the entire region? Well, the Surrey Board of Trade wants it to encompass the entire region. Uh, It reduces red tape. It's good for business. And uh, we have always been part of this regional licensing roundtable for the past 12 years. Uh, Metro Vancouver mayors have made a leadership decision. And uh, if one or two or three municipalities uh, don't go into this regional business license model that compromises Metro's economy, Metro's transportation uh, options. So uh, somehow uh, there needs to be a path forward where all municipalities in Metro, all 21 of them, uh, go into this Metro regional business license model together and figure out uh, later Um, all of the things that are needed uh, in order to get what they want. Um, But um, we need to cut red tape. Red tape costs business. And I wanted to ask you as well, because you were such a proponent of uh, rideshare before we got it, and and I know your businesses had been polled or businesses in Surrey had been polled many times, have you had any feedback as far as have things changed or people responding to the fact that it is now available? Well, they're excited that it's available. Our our business members are excited about it. And I hear anecdotally from our residents uh, as well that they're excited. I mean, there's ride-sharing all over the world. Uh, Why not in British Columbia? We also need ride-sharing in all of British Columbia, by the way, as one true model. But uh, we're, we're excited that it's here. But we also know that consumers want a choice. In Surrey in itself, we have 1,400 people moving into our city a month. Uh, There's enough business for both industries. All right. And put the um, petition out there again for people if they do want to go check it out or sign it. Where can people find that again? www.ipetitions.com backslash petition backslash remove red tape for the taxi industry or something easier, go to businessinsurrey.com and just click on the petition link. All right. Anita Hubberman, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Anita Hubberman is the CEO at the Surrey Board of Trade. Right now, though, we are going to take another look at the Public Safety Committee in Surrey. And one Surrey City Councillor is calling for the city to bring it back. Linda Annis joins me on the line now. Councillor Annis, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Give us a bit of background for people who aren't familiar with what happened to the Public Safety Committee. Well, the Public Safety Committee, which has been around since 2003, was dissolved by Mayor McCallum uh, mid-last year. He wanted to uh, dissolve that committee so that he could strike a new committee 
that dealt only with the police transition that he is proposing for our city. And on the police transition committee uh, sat he and his four other safe city councillors. And quite frankly, they've never met, at least to the best of my knowledge, Uh, The issue around the Public Safety Committee, it doesn't just deal with police. It deals with all sorts of public safety issues, including fire, emergency services, Fraser Fraser Health bylaws, just to mention a few. So it's very vital that we get this back up and running in our city. So have there been repercussions or or negative uh, outcomes since it was cancelled? Absolutely. There's not the flow of information. Uh, There aren't the development of programs that we have. Previous councils have done an awful lot of work in collaboration with staff to ensure that we have great crime prevention programs as well as good safety strategies as well. And there is no oversight in the city uh, from council at this point in time on those programs. And what was the reason given? Was it the reason given that instead the mayor wanted to focus on the transition team or was there a different reason given as to why the committee was dissolved? The mayor's number one priority was the police transition at at any cost to any other programs. And very shortly after he struck his committee, um, the province then came along and said that they would have a committee that would provide oversight to the proposed uh, policing transition. So in, a, in essence, the committee that the mayor had struck had no real mandate. And to the best of my knowledge, they never, ever met. There's no meeting minutes. There's no nothing. Hmm. So what would happen now then, say, if the fire chief or somebody in Surrey had a concern and wanted to bring it to council? Would they have in the past, say, gone to this committee and now they can't? Or what would that, or how would that unfold? Well, in the past, they would meet very regularly, and they would be part of the Public Safety Committee. Uh, Previously, on the Public Safety Committee was all members of council and the mayor, and then people that were involved uh, in a staffing position that uh, influenced public safety in the city. So, for an example, the police chief, the head of bylaws, a member from Fraser Health, just to name a few, but any, so what it really did was it provided a collaborative, integrated approach to public safety in our city. Right. And so, so now what would, what, is it fractured or is there any way, would somebody have to come to council then and make a presentation to the to the council rather than to the committee? It's very fractured. Uh, it was a great conduit when we had the public safety committee. It brought everyone together. So we were working collaboratively and working in an integrated approach to ensure that all aspects of public safety were covered in our city. Uh, what would you say then if somebody's hearing this and thinking, well, this sounds like you're opposed to the committee being used as the uh, team, the, 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 the team that's doing the transition to a Surrey police force? Uh, This has nothing to do with the transition to the police force. No matter what badge we have serving the city of Surrey, we still need to have a public safety committee. This isn't about what badge it is or who's serving us in terms of uh, policing. It's about bringing police, fire, bylaws, Fraser Health, and other emergency services together in one committee so that we can work collaboratively together. Uh, So what happens now with this as far as bringing a motion forward to bring it back? I mean, is there even a a chance that that will be passed? I'm really hoping that the mayor um, hears uh, the need for it uh, at the next council meeting, which is March the 9th. uh, This will be brought forward uh, and we will be voted on it. And I really, really hope that the rest of council sees the need for this. It's very, very important uh, from a 
crime prevention and public safety aspect that we get this committee back on track and get all levels of public safety talking together in a collaborative fashion in Surrey. All right. Uh, Councillor, I wanted to ask you uh, one other question as well. Um, and, and I don't know if there has been any update. The last time I talked to you, though, was after the court ruling uh, when it had to do with ride sharing and the city of Surrey. And there was some question on how much the city spent to take Uber to court. And I know you and uh, Councillor Locke, uh, some of the councillors have said they wanted to find out that number. Have you been able to get any information on how much that cost taxpayers? At this point in time, we have not been able to get a, a number. I'm hopeful that we will have one very soon. I was very pleased to hear last night at Council that we're moving ahead uh, with the interprovincial licensing uh, and that uh, we will not be... Pr- putting up any resistance to having Uber in Surrey. That was great news at Council last night and very, very pleased to see that Council supported that 100%. So no matter what the parameters are or what comes out as far as the final model for the inter-municipal license, Surrey will be on board? Surrey is on board, and we're looking at ways that we can uh, level the ta- uh, level the playing field uh, for taxi cab drivers uh, and I think the city is doing a great job in terms of working towards that end. Are you confident that taxpayers in Surrey will eventually find out how much of their money was used to fight this in court? Absolutely. Uh, I think it's it's early days yet, and I suspect all of our legal bills aren't even in you know haven't even been received by the city yet. But I think it's very important that the residents of Surrey know what we spent on this particular uh, case. After all, it is their tax-paying money that is is funding this. And quite frankly, it's it's a bit disturbing because I think most of the people in Surrey have been calling for ride hailing for a long, long time. Uh, and it shouldn't take that long, should it? With legal bills, I mean, lawyers tend to like to get paid pretty quickly when they're uh, covering cases, if not beforehand. It shouldn't take that long, should it? I think we all like to get paid as quickly <laughs> as we can. And uh, no, I don't think it should take uh, uh, long at all. But I know that we were you know, exploring our options as a city over the past uh, few weeks uh, to determine what the next steps would be. But I think we've finally come to a conclusion and a really good conclusion that we'll be, we'll be moving forward with Uber um, as quickly as we can. But as far as finding out what it costs, do you have to put a motion forward or do you just request that from the mayor's office? Uh, We actually would request it through our finance department, uh, and they will be able to provide it to us. All right. Well, we look forward to to finding out more about those numbers. Uh, Councillor Annis, thank you so much for your time. Always much appreciated. My pleasure. All right. Linda Annis is a Surrey City Councillor talking about bringing back the Public Safety Committee and as well, still don't know exactly what it cost the city of Surrey to take Uber to court. All right. Thanks for being with us. Joining me in studio now is Michael Geller, no uh, stranger to the program. He is an architect, a planner, developer. The title goes on and on and on. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for being in studio with us. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, You were talking with me on this uh, on the weekend about this, and this is something for anybody that was paying attention attention to this particular story. It was Brent Totterin, who is the former city of Vancouver city planner. He went public and he even said he, he, he and his wife really talked about it before they decided to go public with their story. And this was their 10-year plan. They moved to the, into the building next to Crosstown Elementary where that school was going to be built. It was built. Their child's now going into kindergarten. They, like many, many parents last week, got the email. You got a yay or a nay. They got a nay. And they're quite devastated by the fact they now don't know where their child's going to go to school. But the response to that story 
has been huge. You've written a column about it. What are your thoughts, even on how that unfolded? Just, just for the listeners, Jill, when we say he got an A, he got an A because they had to put their names in a lottery. Mm-hmm. There were so few classroom spaces for so many people living in this planned, walkable community. And that's what the nay was. His kid could not go to the school immediately across the street from where they lived. Yeah. And I know from growing up and talking to my friends and from our own family experience, many people choose where they live based on where the kids will go to school. It's a very, very important decision. And, uh, and I think what was particularly troubling for me is that for 30 years, the city of Vancouver has been developing these wonderful planned communities in Coal Harbor, Falls Creek, uh, more recently, the Olympic Village. They're designed as communities for people who don't have to have a car so they can walk. Mm-hmm. And now we're finding out that there aren't school facilities now that the children are ready to go to school. And I think it is worthy of discussion, not just to find blame, but also to try and make sure this doesn't keep happening. So why is this happening? Because the response, and again, you've written a column, the response when Brent started tweeting about this was huge, both with parents coming forward in the same situation uh, and others wanting to put, put, put blame. A lot of people blaming the city, but Brent came out saying, actually, the city did it right here in that, uh, with the example of Crosstown Elementary, they gave that land to the developer. The original school was going to be smaller. It was made larger. Uh, The same thing. There's been land set aside in Olympic Village, Coal Harbor, but those schools haven't been built. There are three key players. There's the city, which approves the development. There's the school board, which is a separate entity, but part of the city, but but separate from the city. But neither of them actually build the schools. The schools are built and paid for by the provincial government out of the property taxes that we all pay. And the problem, I think, is poor coordination between those three players. Because something came up as well, and it, it, it's a strange phrase, but I heard it a few times. You might have even used it in that they need to see the whites of the children's <laughs> eyes before they even consider building a school, which doesn't seem like the most proactive way to plan something. I learned that expression from Greg Frank. And Greg, if you're <laughs> listening, he was the senior administrator with the school board in Burnaby when we were trying to build a school at SFU. And having been involved in the South Shore Falls Creek and a project in Toronto, called St. Lawrence, where the planners and the administration of the schools were able to coordinate schools in place the day the first residents moved in. I knew that people moving to the new community at SFU would want to have schools in place. Mm -hmm. And when I suggested to this gentleman, can't we get a school in place, when the first residents moved in, Geller, he said, you have to appreciate school board administrators want to see the whites of the children's <laughs> eyes before they're ready to start planning the school. Yikes. Which, I mean, I guess it makes sense, but it doesn't work out that way for a lot of people. It's not as if we can't predict how many children will likely move in. And indeed, most school boards and various provincial government authorities related to education have statistics that can relate the number of children who are likely to move in based on the size of the homes being built. Now, there are exceptions. I remember out at university, University Hill, a lot of people were buying condominiums or renting apartments out in the new community at UBC just so that they could 
get their children into University Hill. They weren't even living in the units, but they had that address because it was so important to them. So yes, you can't always predict with great precision, but you can get a general idea that when you're building a lot of townhouses, and in fact, the city requires you to build family-oriented housing as part of the approval process, that there's a good chance kids will be moving in. So it almost seems like Vancouver in this regard is a bit of a victim of its own success in that it's built these communities. And for a long time, I think there's been this idea, oh, families don't live in condos. They don't live in these places in the sky. Clearly they do because there are a lot of kids in these communities. You're right to point this out. I once did an interview with the New York Times that came to Vancouver because they were so intrigued that we were building developments like False Creek and Coal Harbor and encouraging families with children to move in. And they were moving in. Now, when you and I think of New York City, you think of families living on Park Avenue and downtown with children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But most North American cities, families with children, if they have the means, do not choose to live in apartments. Vancouver has been an exception. And I think credit does go to former planners, uh, including Anne McAfee, who once did a publication called Housing Families at Higher Densities. And it was done to, I mean, at one point, we used to have to make sure that all the family units were generally within the first five floors, because that was deemed to be an appropriate distance for the, the parents to stand out on the balcony and call the kids back in. <laughs> wow, the things you don't think about when you look at those buildings. Uh, do you think it is, though, when you talk about the lack of communication between those three levels, the city, the school board, and the provincial government, uh, this came up when talking to Brent last week as well. There's no incentive. The school board says that, yes, Olympic Village and Coal Harbor are on the priority list. That doesn't really mean anything because it doesn't give a timeline. It doesn't give a time frame. It doesn't say the school will be built by this particular year. There's no incentive when the school board in Vancouver has schools that are half empty elsewhere in the city. They don't care if parents have to drive their kids to school. In fact, it might be better for them because it ups attendance at other schools and they no longer have to talk about the very controversial issue of closing schools. Unfortunately, you're right. Now, I would not say they don't care. I think I'd like to think the school board officials and education officials appreciate that it is somewhat tragic when families cannot send the kid literally across the street. But you're absolutely right. If you are sitting there with a school that's half empty, and even though you might be able to build some new housing nearby, and in three or five years, some more families move in, the immediate priority is to fill up those existing classrooms. And that's exactly what's happening. That's the argument for for not uh, building these new schools as quickly as they should. Uh, So what needs to change as far as, is it the funding mechanism? Is that outdated? Is it having more foresight into this is what this community is going to look like in the next few years? Make sure there's a school. What needs to change? Well, I think the fact that we're talking about it, I mean, this has been going on for literally decades. The school was initially planned in Coal Harbor Harbor 30 years ago. Hmm. Literally thousands of homes have been built in Coal Harbor. Now, the sad part is that although there are a lot of family-oriented townhouses and apartments, because there was no school on within the community, a lot of families have chosen not to move in. So it is a bit of a chicken and an egg. But I think what we need to do is start recognizing how important it is to make sure we're planning, not to, waiting till we see the whites of the children's eyes, but recognizing that these new communities, including communities with townhouses and apartments, can attract children. 
We are continuing now with Michael Geller. He is my guest in studio, an architect, a planner, a consultant, developer. Just before the break, we were talking about schools and the planning or lack of planning, I suppose, when building neighborhoods and the lack of communication. And that is part of Michael Geller's column, which is currently in the Vancouver Courier. Uh, we've opened up the phone lines. If you have a question about this or if you want to share your experience, because certainly a lot of people were sharing their experiences after former Vancouver City planner Brent Totteron and shared his experience about his son not getting into the school literally across the street last week. Uh, let's go to Glenn. Glenn is on the line from Maple Ridge. Glenn, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I just want to spitball an idea. Fortunately, my boys have gone through school and, 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 they're, and they're done now. But uh, why don't, with, if, with urban planning, and this might even work in rural, instead of building big institutional schools, don't, I, 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 for lack of a better term, um, why don't they have, why don't they, especially in the urban areas, have smaller smaller rooms where the government can lease out a space. you got 30, 60 students in a, in a smaller area, and you can scatter them around so that they are in the neighborhood. And, you know, like, I think that might be a better plan. It would even work in rural areas where, where instead of taking a school bus for three hours, they have a... They have a teacher, almost homeschool style, but with a with a registered teacher um, teaching the class and with the internet connections and all that. I mean, I think maybe we got to restart thinking education. All right, Glenn, thanks for that. And uh, Michael, that's actually something Brent Totteron said as well, that in the rural areas, say Surrey, Langley and places, you can put portables on the school grounds. It's not perfect, but it is a solution. And he even floated that idea that to be nimble or to be more creative when it comes to planning, Mm -hmm. if the school's not big enough, rent office space, do what private schools do. And we can do it in uh, urban centres as well. But I think Glenn raises an interesting question, which is, you know, is there an average size school? Are we building smaller schools? Uh, I, I was away last week. I played golf with a fellow whose son went to a high school in St. Louis with 4,700 students. Wow. 4,700 students. <laughs> wow. And uh, when I expressed shock at that, he said, well, you know, that, that's the size of some of the high schools in that particular city. Generally speaking, we do have smaller schools, but it gets down to economics. It's the cost of the mm-hmm. administration, the principal, the vice principal. And generally speaking, you want to try and amortize those costs over a certain number of students. But I do think we tend to have smaller schools compared to other cities in North America. Well, and you mentioned False Creek School, and it's mentioned in your column as well, and how that was built as part of the False Creek community. I mean, that school's been at capacity. It's been a lottery for several years as well, which on the one hand shows success that people want to go to that school and people are living in the neighborhood, but also a lot of disappointment, much like uh, Brent Totterin had last week. There's a lot of people living in that neighborhood as well that aren't getting into that school. A lot of the credit for that school, though, should go to the then mayor, Art Phillips, who Mm. was behind the False Creek development because he made sure a number of things happened. He made sure that there was a school in place. He also made sure that there was public transit in place the day the very first residents moved in. And he came up with a creative subsidy arrangement for BC Transit. 
after I worked on Falls Creek, I went to Toronto, and I mentioned this in the column, worked on the St. Lawrence Project. And once again, it was Mayor David Crombie who insisted that there not only be an elementary school, there be two, one for the public school system and one for the Catholic school system. He even told them they had to share a gymnasium, which is completely <laughs> unheard of at the time. But the point is, there are some creative solutions. In order to make sure that school got built at the beginning, they put six floors of housing above it. So there are different approaches. One of the reasons I wanted to chat to you about this is because I still see other communities throughout Metro Vancouver, in Maple Ridge, in other suburban municipalities, where building new communities without adequate transit and without adequate schools in, in nearby locations. I think it's wrong. Well, and it doesn't really make sense when we're telling people we want them to get out of their vehicles and walk more. If you build a community with a school next door, but you're driving half an hour because you have to go to a different school, it completely flies in the face of the whole point. When we did this school that's up at SFU's University, and we managed to get that school built a little faster because we actually arranged with the university to give a building that they weren't fully utilizing to the school board as the base for the school. And that was quite a discussion. But again, it was a creative solution. One of the interesting things, though, is when I showed them the plans, they said, well, where's the parking? And I said, we're not going to have parking for parents. (laughs) This is a walkable community. And in the end, they did agree that we would have a couple of spaces for the staff and for parents uh, who had had children who were handicapped so they could drop them off. Where do you think we need to go with this then? You've, you've cited the lack of communication in the column. What's the first step to trying to fix this? Well, the first thing, and I did mention at the end, is Carol James uh, introduced something called the additional school tax. Now, most people who are listening to you right now know that that money was really only going to go into general revenues. It mm-hmm. wasn't even for schools. Well, as a starter, I would suggest that the government should take all of that money they're collecting through their additional school tax and devote it in its entirety to the funding of new schools, as well as the upgrading of existing schools, because at the root of this problem is money. And I think the more money we can get, anyone who looks at their property tax bill will see we're all paying a lot of money for schools. But but it is a very important, as I said before, for many parents, it's the key decision as to why they move into a particular location, the quality of the schools. One other thing, though, mm-hmm. is maybe we need to look at the catchment philosophy. Like, I don't know all the rules right now, but I do recall at one time that the boundaries were softened so that I was told, and this may or may not be correct, that many of the students in the West Vancouver schools actually live in North Vancouver, but they drive over because they'd like to have their kids in those schools and there's available classrooms. Maybe we need to rethink all the philosophy of catchments so that much more priority does give to people who are literally living across the road from a school. All right. We'll have you back to talk catchments another time. That is Michael Geller. We're right out of time. Architect, planner, property developer. If you want to weigh in, give the buzz line a call. Well, you've likely been hearing about stories about rising insurance costs for strata councils and strata buildings. It's pretty daunting in some cases. I want to take you back to January 6th, because that is the first day I started taking a look at this. We were contacted by a strata corporation in Langley, who told us, hey, our strata is going up, our fees are going up, but something like 300%. And we are going to be in a position where we have nothing else we can do but pass that cost along to our members, to the people who own strata units in this building. 
We're not talking about an old, decrepit, rundown building. This was a building just a couple of years old. It had no claims against it, nothing. It wasn't as though there had been a pipe burst and several of the units had been destroyed, nothing. It wasn't as though it had no depreciation report, that it had no planning, that it had left the building fall into disrepair. No, it was absolutely fine. So I reached out to the ministry saying, can anybody comment on this? Is this even on your radar, reaching out to the Ministry of Finance? The response I got was, the minister is not available. That's pretty standard. But then I was told, you can use these bullet points below if you want to do so on background. And the bullet points were this. And again, this is January 6th. So this isn't just yesterday or last week when others started getting on this story. January 6th, the response I got from the BC Ministry of Finance was, the rising cost of insurance because of climate change and an increase of weather-related incidents is an issue that strata corporations are facing across Canada and across the world. The second bullet point, government continues to engage with the private insurance industry to determine how, in the face of climate change, climate challenge, sorry, British Columbians can continue to access affordable insurance coverage. And the third bullet point was stratas that may be having difficulties finding an insurance broker can contact the Insurance Bureau of Canada. So really nothing, absolutely nothing. Basically, yeah, we know about it. Here's something you can do. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, since we first covered that story here on CKNW and on Global BC, On January 6th, there have been numerous other stories. We were contacted by many people in similar situations, in similar stratas, saying, yeah, we are in the same boat. We don't know what we're going to do because our fees are going up. And keep in mind, it's not just the fee that the building is paying to insure itself. It's the deductible. In one case, in that first story I did, again, back on January 6th, the building's deductible went from $5,000 to 250000 I thought it was a typo, as did everybody in the building. But no, they double-checked with the insurance broker. That's what it was. Which means, if you have personal insurance and your deductible is 60000 that means if you cause a flood or a fire or if you cause damage to other units, you're going to be on the hook for the difference. And I don't know very many people that have that much cash sitting around that they would be able to cover that. So the good news is that since that response with the bullet points that really said nothing back on January 6th, we are hearing politicians talk about this. We are hearing the government talk about this, at least raising it as a legitimate issue. Todd Stone is the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. Also, the critic for the housing, uh, the municipal affairs and housing ministry. And he joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Todd Stone, thanks so much for being with us. So happy to be with you, Jill. Uh, So what have you done as far as bringing up this issue and making sure that this issue is getting some attention? Well, uh, today in the legislature, uh, I introduced a private member's bill uh, that includes uh, four uh, four actions. They're, they're all achievable, practical uh, ideas that, uh, frankly, uh, did, did, didn't come from me. Uh, they came from the Condominium Homeowners Association, the BC Real Estate Association, uh, uh, the Insurance Bureau, the insurance brokers, and others. Um, and, and they're just they're, they're they're intended to be some practical initial steps that can be taken by the province of British Columbia to uh, to first off in recognition of the the skyrocketing strata uh, fee issue uh, to to uh, to try and apply some downward pressure on on those rates. Uh, complementary to that, we're also calling for the government to establish a um, a strata. 
property damage uh, a fund of some sort uh, that uh, would essentially uh, help homeowners in in their you know their current strata uh, units um, offset some of the the costs that would be associated with 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 up, making the upgrades that would uh, that it would address uh, it, you know issues that that are that 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 often can result in water damage uh, that's the single biggest driver in this whole issue so some practical first steps Certainly, there's no uh, silver bullets, but uh, we're saying to the government, uh, you know, come on, it, it's time to, to stop uh, talking and let's, uh, let's take some action on this. So why do you think we're seeing this at this point now? Because it does seem to be more uh, the strata buildings, although there are cases where people have had no claims and there have been no issues with the building. But it does seem to be buildings that have a history of claims, that have a history of per- perhaps not doing preventative maintenance. So why are we seeing this now translate into these huge fees? Well, it's it's uh, it it is most commonly uh, uh, you know being realized in some older older building buildings that um, have have perhaps um, had some maintenance uh, issues or as you say uh, have a, a, a recent claims history. But that's not not uh, to say that that's every case that that we're hearing about. Uh, I have a, a Strata a Corporation up in Kamloops uh, that uh, is a relatively new building. Uh, they haven't had any water uh, claims uh, at all in that building. Uh, they had a. Uh, they were met with the the, the surprise of a 335 percent increase in their in their annual premium. Uh, they are are hit with uh, an increase in their water, sewer, and and flood uh, deductible from uh, from about uh, ten thousand to uh, to two hundred and fifty thousand. Again, with no rational explanation given uh, for that building, that's going to mean a, a, a one-time assessment of about a thousand dollars per uh, per strata owner. And then their their monthly fees are are, are also going to go up by a hundred dollars per month. So uh, it, they're looking at this going. We can't afford uh, uh, another hundred bucks a month, let alone this one time um, uh, hit of a thousand a thousand dollars. And as I said, that particular example uh, doesn't have a, a water uh, a water issue or any other recent claim uh, against it. That's just the best uh, insurance renewal that they could get at the present time. Uh, we're also being told that a lot of insurance companies are just choosing not to insure stratas because of the liability. Uh, you take out five units with a busted pipe, it's a huge bill. They don't make money off of it, uh, that they're dealing with global issues where they're losing money. So it's just not viable to stay in the strata industry. Uh, how do you make it then? Is it, is it a matter of government forcing insurance to say if you're going to offer one kind of insurance, you have to offer it all? Well, there's no question that there are some global uh, uh, headwinds here in the insurance, the strata insurance uh, uh, business. Uh, um, in British Columbia, we have the added overlay of um, uh, pretty tight uh, com- a competitive market. Uh, there's there's really three insurance underwriters uh, and brokers that, that cover off about 85 percent of the market, uh, so that doesn't help. But again, uh, we're, we're we're not saying uh, to, uh, that today we can just wave a magic wand and 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 make this issue entirely go away. What we're saying is uh, the government's got to step up and start taking some practical actions. Uh, the, this, um, this strata water pr- damage prevention program that we're calling for, this would put real money on the table for, uh, for existing uh, homeowners, strata uh, homeowners in British Columbia and the corporations to, to say, hey, you should be upgrading every rubber hose uh, to a steel braided hose. You should be ensuring you've got low flow toilets. You should be ensuring you've got auto uh, uh, shutoff valves and, and so forth. Uh, to, you know, all of the different areas where, where 
significant water damage can occur, which then has a huge impact on driving up your, your premiums and deductibles. Um, uh, let's make sure that people have the resources uh, uh, to, 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 to be making the investments and upgrading uh, uh, you know, those areas. That, that would be something the government could do today, and, and it would actually begin to make a difference. All right. We'll have to leave it there. We'll see uh, where things go uh, with the bill and uh, with changes as we hear more and more uh, stories like this. Uh, Todd Stone, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. All right. Todd Stone is the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. For anybody trying to get home on the West Coast Express yesterday, it was a frustrating afternoon. A protest set up by the Haney Bypass by a small group shut down the West Coast Express for people heading home. That had the mayor of Port Coquitlam uh, saying some choice words about the protesters. And he's joining us on the line now. Mayor Brad West is with us. Mayor, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. I know you were frustrated along with many of your constituents last night. What are your thoughts about this group, the Red Braid group, uh, that once again shut down uh, train movement? I just think it's an absolute uh, fringe you know, self-described anarchist group um, that has been given uh, way too much leash to create a, a whole heck of a lot of chaos and, and havoc in our communities. Uh, they have a very long record of uh, this type of activity. Uh, I was just recently actually reading an article back from 2018 where they occupied an elementary school in Nanaimo and trashed it to hell and caused $100,000 worth of damage. So this is not uh, a, a group that's interested in legitimate uh, protest. Uh, they, they really have no connection to the wet Sudan issue at all. What they do is they look for opportunities uh, to turn people's uh, lives upside down and, and screw up other individuals' day. That seems to be their raison d'etre, and, uh, and they've been able to get away with it. Uh, and I just think that that's you know, absolutely ridiculous, and we cannot allow uh, a very small fringe group like that to hold the rest of us and our society hostage. Uh, one of the members, and you mentioned the Nanaimo school incident, uh, one of the leaders of the group, Ivan Drury, who has been, I think, at every protest I've ever covered, uh, he was actually charged in connection with the Nanaimo school incident. Uh, he was at the protest last night, one of the most vocal there. Is it frustrating? I mean, police moved in pretty fast. Is it frustrating, though, they didn't move in fast enough that maybe the trains were suspended for a while, but people still got home? Well, look, I, I think the response should be instantaneous. Uh, because that's what it would be if uh, Jill Bennett or Brad West or any of your listeners decided that we were going to go blockade railway tracks and, and stop the West Coast Express. So I think it should be instantaneous. Now, I, I do appreciate that the police moved uh, quite quickly in, in this regard um, last, last night. But, you know, you still had uh, thousands of people who were left stranded, had no way to get home. Uh, you know, and as I, I said before, I'll say it again, you know, this is targeted directly at working people in Port Coquitlam, Pitt Meadows, Maple Ridge and Mission, who don't have a SkyTrain in their community, who don't have a lot of other good options, and who are doing nothing more than trying to get to work and then get home to their families at the end of the day. And the idea that they've become uh, a punching bag for a, a group like this uh, is just ridiculous, uh, and they should not be given any 
uh, leash to be able to get away with this stuff because all it does is embolden them. There's zero consequences. They can do something like this and walk away without any responsibility or accountability. And so what does that invite? That invites them to do it again and again and again. And it's ordinary people in my community and in Pet Meadows and Maple Ridge and Mission and all other parts of this region who then pay the price for that. Oh, and it's happening, I know not in your community, but the intersection of Clark and Hastings in Vancouver occupied overnight. Uh, that's an area where there is an injunction, where even when they started protesting there yesterday, again, this group saying, we fully expect to be arrested, there's an injunction, police didn't move in. So what would you like to see change as far as the response to these protests that continue to pop up? Uh, I, again, I, I'd just like to see an instantaneous response uh, and to have the situation treated as if it were anyone else who decided they were going to go uh, blockade a, a major intersection. I mean, traditionally, when people engage in civil disobedience, there is an understanding and perhaps even a, a desire to be arrested. Uh, and, and that has happened many, many times in the, in the past. And so uh, I think very simply that uh, when these things happen, uh the law should be followed. And, you know, when there's an injunction, it it should be enforced. Uh, You know, these actions are so misdirected in their target. You know, you're you're targeting regular working people who have no power or authority in in decision-making. They're not in a position to alter an outcome or, or to meet any sort of demands that these folks might have. And, you know, nor should we, but it's just ridiculous. This is not sending a message to a politician or a government or a company. All it is, is screwing people's day up uh, and, you know, causing a lot of stress in families. And so, you know, we should be dealing with this in the same way we would if any other individual decided they wanted to go and try and grind uh, our traffic or our commuter rail or, quite frankly, our society to a halt. It just it, it wouldn't be allowed to happen, and we should be responding in the same way in this regard. Uh, we only have about a minute left. Uh, when this first happened, you talked about a constituent who was late to picking up her child. It cost yeah. her an extra $100. Did you hear from constituents yesterday? I did. Uh, I've heard from, and no one shared the story with me about uh, a charge, but I, I did hear from a number of uh, constituents yesterday who were in the exact same boat. Like, my my sons, I have a three-year-old son and he's in daycare and I know my wife and I have to you know, plan our day and figure out, okay, who gets off at what time to be able to pick him up because you know, the, the daycare is obviously running a business and they're paying wages and if someone has to stay uh, late, they have to pay that person and, and there's a charge that gets incurred. So you know, this is a real thing and this happens um, and, you know, and it's just completely unfair that uh, because of the actions, uh, again, of a, a group like this, that you'd have uh, parents who are going to get dinged uh, because without warning, all of a sudden they can't get home. All right. Uh, Mayor, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much. Always good to talk to you about this. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Jill. Thank you. All right. Brad West is the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Let's move on, though, because this is a rather interesting survey, a poll asking Canadians, would you purposely cause harm to yourself or to your property to get an upgrade paid for by your insurance company? The results, well, they might surprise you. So let's bring in someone to talk to us about this. Scott Berkey is the publisher of Finder Canada, and he is on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I was reading through some of the results. This is a very strange uh, survey. Yeah, it really is. It, um, you know, the, the key finding that we had after speaking with 1,200 Canadians, um, now this is across Canada and it's representative of the entire country, um, is that two in five Canadians secretly hope something will go wrong so they can claim it on insurance. <laughs> and I, I guess we should be happy that uh, when looking at car crashes and, and hoping to get an upgrade from a car crash, there's the bigger percentage of people who want a car crash with nobody hurt. So at least we're not, we're not wanting to cause harm to ourselves or others. Right. No one wants to be harmed. No one wants anything really bad to happen. And they especially don't want to get caught. Right. Which, so were you surprised by those findings? Yeah, especially this, you know, the, the 21% said they would stage an event or mislead an insurance company to get an insurance paid upgrade. That's, that's a bit shocking, I think. Because it is a crime, is it not? It is. And I guess that's the caveat. If they, if they, they, they would do this if they didn't get caught. And we don't have figures on, uh, on whether people would do it if there was the risk of being caught. And I would hope that my number would be much, much lower than 21%. Absolutely. Uh, it also breaks down uh, men versus women, a very different response there. Yeah, it, uh, what we found is that men are much more likely to... Uh, to um, look for this type of upgrade. Uh, 27% of, of men said that they would do so, and uh, that was versus 20% of women. And that was for car accidents where no one is hurt. Um, you know, you, you bring that down to a bed bug infest, infestation, and uh, the number drops to 8%, where no one would want to have a bed bug infest, infestation. Which is an interesting, I saw that and thought, interesting question. So you asked people, and that was with the idea, I suppose, of getting a, a housing or some kind of upgrade in that sense. Would you go through a bed bug infestation? And not a huge surprise there, people don't want to do that. No, they definitely don't. Um, and people don't seem to want fires either. Uh, 17% of men uh, said they would go through a fire where no one was hurt, but your home is destroyed, versus 14% uh, of women. Hmm. Um, yeah. You looked at it, the generation, uh, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, uh, Gen Z. What did you find as far as looking at the different age groups of people? Well, we found that Gen Z and millennials are the most uh, far or the most likely um, to crash damage or say their car was stolen uh, than older Canadians, uh, such as the silent generation uh, and baby boomers. So we found 26% of Gen Z and 16% of millennials um, versus 5% of silent generation and 5% of baby boomers. Hmm, pretty dramatic. That's a dramatic change, absolutely, or a dramatic uh, difference in uh, the answers that were given. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit as well. So this idea of breaking your own arm, thankfully that one also came in quite low. Yeah, really low. It said, um, it said that 6% of people would go, for, go as far as breaking their own arm or pretending to have a chronic Ill, uh, illness for insurance money. Um, so it, it's it's comforting to know that it's only 6% of people who would go and do this, but still, it still seems like a large number. And, and I mean, you've got to have, there must be some leeway there too, in that this is a survey, like you said, 1,200 Canadians right across the country. Uh, it's one thing to say that you would do that. It's another thing. We're not talking about people who have done that. Right. We're not, we're definitely not talking about people who have done that. And we're also not attributing a certain, um, 
numerical or, or monetary value to these. We're not simply saying, would you do this for a million dollars? We're just saying, would you do this theoretically um, if you could get an upgrade? And if you could get away with it without, without having to do the time? Yeah, without getting caught. So is the purpose of this to look at insurance fraud or to look at just how far people would go or if the, what people think it's okay as far as being fraudulent when it comes to insurance? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting to gauge attitudes about this type of behavior to see what people would be willing to do um, in in an unethical way um, if they if they weren't subject to consequences as a result. So yeah. And you mentioned fire. I mean, that's something too that whenever we're not talking about homes as much here, but whenever there, if there's a business that's perhaps struggling or going through a downturn, if there is a fire, the first thing people do, and maybe it's quite cynical, but the first thing people tend to think or the scuttlebutt would be, hmm, well, that's interesting. It wasn't doing so well and now it's burnt to the ground. There's that perception that people do this. I'm hoping that the perception or the thought that people do this is much more than people actually doing it. Yes, exactly. Because it, you know, whether it's home insurance or life insurance, these are uh, these are, are products that we buy in our everyday lives that actually protect us. And it's important that these are there to be there when we need them, not to be used for fraudulent means. And this whole idea of insurance there for an upgrade—that seems like a strange way of looking at it too. In that, yeah, if your car is stolen or it's crashed and it's not your fault it's a write-off you are going you're going to get an upgrade but it's not as though insurance is there that that's part of the purchasing process of a vehicle right and we also didn't take into account here what someone's individual deductible would be and the the numbers themselves could have been different had we said you've got a thousand dollar deductible you've got a car that's worth three thousand dollars you're going to get a ten thousand dollar car as a result Um, we didn't quantify it like that Um, more than anything we wanted to have uh, have a little bit of fun with these theoretical um, questions here Right. And and that's, I think, where it comes in that it is a bit of a strange survey because you don't often think about this or you don't often get the question put to you, uh, would you want to endure a bed bug infestation or would you want to be in a car crash where you're not hurt, but the car is totaled? Right. It's sort of, um, we, we took the concept of a would you rather and just really expanded that um, and, and brought it down to, uh, to uh, applicable within the insurance industry. Uh, what were some of the other questions? I think we've covered most of them. Oh, someone stealing all of your valuables was also put uh, put out there to people. Yes, we had that. We had um, we had appliances uh, oh, and computers going completely um, completely on the fritz. Um, having your engagement ring stolen or your uh, clothing or accessories. Um, Did you travel ask people plans about their was phones? another one. Pardon me? Did you ask people about their phones? Because people tend to be very connected to their phones. No, we didn't. Uh, we didn't ask about phones, actually. We asked, uh, yeah, about car, home, travel plans, computers, appliances. Um, perhaps that would have fallen under accessories, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, we didn't touch on phones <laughs> specifically. Uh, you mentioned travel plans. That one I thought was an interesting one as well, as far as people wanting an upgrade. And again, uh, I mean, you buy insurance. We're often told, absolutely make sure you get insurance, but probably shouldn't be that this is the best way to get the better room because something might go wrong. Right. And there are so many caveats within travel insurance 
that you really do need to read the fine print um, when it comes to uh, cancellations. So it, it is unclear as to how this would this would apply when it comes to to travel insurance. Uh, I did find it interesting too when you mentioned the engagement ring question. There wasn't much difference between women and men. Six percent of women, five percent of men, uh, which I found odd because in most cases men don't have engagement rings. I'm assuming they're talking about perhaps a ring they purchased and gave to somebody. Right, or their their actual wedding ring, uh, but I mean it's still concerning because this is this is sentimental. It's not something that um, that for everyone has just monetary uh, monetary value that it says it's cheap value. This is this is a very sentimental uh, thing, and that's still a rather high number for an upgrade on something that's so sentimental. Absolutely. It's not like replacing the stove that doesn't really mean anything or probably doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, So the takeaway, this obviously is to raise awareness about insurance fraud and to kind of a a fun way of getting the pulse of the country. What do you take away or your number one takeaway from this? Um, the, I think the, the, the most interesting figure about this is the, the difference in age gap, um, between, uh, Gen Z, um, and millennials, um, being far more likely to crash damage or say their car was stolen than, uh, than older Canadians. I mean, we're looking at 26 and 16% versus 5% for baby boomers. And that's a big number. Absolutely. All right. Very interesting findings. Uh, We will leave it there. Scott, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. Scott Berkey is the publisher of Finder Canada. Very interesting. A one in five Canadians would stage an event for an insurance upgrade. Right. That's a, a fun song to get us into a very serious topic, and it has to do with aggressive dogs. And Claire Allen joins me in studio, contributor to the program. And Claire, we're talking more about this. A lot of people followed along. I covered the story as well of Punky, the dog, which is a dog that unfortunately bit a person, and not to minimize that a person was bit in a Vancouver park. But what that sparked was a very lengthy court battle and a final ruling that the dog was to be euthanized. And that happened a few weeks ago. But a lot of people are now questioning, well, what is an aggressive dog? What is in place to deal with aggressive of dogs. What does this court ruling mean? And now Vancouver City Council is looking at this. That's right, Jill. So today Vancouver City Council is meeting and one of the items on the agenda, uh, it seems like a very jam-packed agenda, but one of the items is um, the way the city deals with quote-unquote aggressive dogs. So uh, Councillor Pete Fry and Michael Weeb have put forward a motion entitled Relief and Rehabilitation of Aggressive Dog Designation, which aims to change the way the city deals with dogs that have attacked another animal or a human. Um, So before we get into the changes being proposed, Jill, I asked Councillor Fry what Vancouver's current aggressive dog bylaw is. So first and foremost, the aggressive dog designation is an important sort of protection for the public and for other dogs in in the event that a a dog has bitten or attacked another person or or animal. And so it's there for a reason. Um, Now, that being said, uh, it it doesn't really uh, investigate the underlying behavior that may have contributed to it. So there's a variety of different reasons that a dog may act aggressively, everything from sex drive, prey drive, uh, illness, uh, fear, confrontation, any number of things. But the remedy, as currently prescribed by the bylaw, is essentially a lifetime of muzzling and social isolation. So in fact, that prescription through the designation doesn't actually do anything to treat the underlying behavior of the dog and in fact may actually create a worse scenario for 
say a dog that's otherwise habituated to social isolation and muzzling, and if for some reason accidentally gets out or escapes, or if somebody comes by. So recognizing that that's something of an outdated concept in, in, in how we approach animal behavior, and, and since the time of the bylaw being written some 40 years ago, uh, we've taken a more um, progressive approach towards uh, animal behavior, and recognizing that, in fact, uh, there are many cases in which a dog... Uh, that's distributed, uh, displaying behavior that might be considered aggressive, can be rehabilitated. So that's kind of the the aim of this whole right. thing is rehabilitation. And Councillor Fry is right. You know, um, we the way we view uh, dogs and pets has really changed. Um, so I asked Councillor Fry what is the change he's looking for with his motion. What's being presented here is, is an option for working with a veterinarian or animal behaviorist to work on addressing the underlying behavior issues. And if it is to the satisfaction of animal control, that designation can be removed and the dog doesn't have to be muzzled and isolated. Right. So right. working with, like he said, a vet or animal behaviorist to address the underlying issues that could be causing a dog to be aggressive. So I you know this made me reflect a little bit on my own life because when I was young, I was attacked by a dog. Uh, my neighbor's dog bit my face uh, when I got between the dog and its food bowl. Uh, thankfully, I had a surgery on my face. And it's, it <laughs> There's has, so many questions there. Why, are, why was your face by the dog's food I was, bowl? A, I, was, I think I was, I was like on the ground. I don't really remember. Um, and although I still have, I bear the scars, Jill. Yes, I, I'm I not know. scarred I wasn't from the... Making, ex- <laughs> I wasn't not, making light of it. Victim blaming. I wasn't making light of I it. I am uh, not scarred by the experience. I still love dogs. <laughs> of course. Um, however, some dog attack victims remain afraid of dogs after, you know, after they have the in, uh, experience an incident with a dog. And they may not be comfortable with Councillor Fry and Weeb's motion. So I asked him about the criticism that he may receive um, that this motion, which gives essentially, which would give an aggressive dog a second chance, may endanger other people and other dogs. This is an opportunity to look at actually changing the behavior from the outset. As far as I'm concerned, we shouldn't really be licensing dogs. Uh, we should be actually licensing dog owners because the ultimate responsibility is with the, 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 the guardian of the animal. It's not the, the animal is just an animal. And the reality is that urban animals are under the stewardship and guardianship of, of people who have to be responsible for their behavior. And so that, first and foremost, has to be, it is and remains the priority. But I guess the point of this motion is recognizing that isolating and muzzling a dog does nothing to address the underlying behavior. So you're really just maintaining a dog that's aggressive and possibly making it more aggressive through through a lack of socialization. And nowhere in this equation is there a consideration for how we would prevent the dog's aggression in the first place. Okay, I get what he's saying, but mm-hmm. I'm also a bit confused. Like you, I also, I wasn't a child at the time. Just a few years ago, I was bit by a Mastiff. And mm-hmm. to this day, as you know, I love dogs. I have dogs, mm-hmm. but I am still fearful of Mastiffs. Mm-hmm. This was a 190-pound Mastiff that jumped. My head was in its mouth, and I got knocked to the ground. It was it was bad. Wow. And I'm afraid of those dogs, not to say they're all bad. So, But what he's saying is, I mean, wouldn't we be safer or happier if even if an owner says, my dog's been rehabilitated, my dog's not going to reoffend, wouldn't it still be safer to say that dog always needs to be muzzled if the dog has a history of being aggressive? Or is that not what he's saying? I think that what he's really focusing on is this rehabilitation effort to sort of change the way that an owner views their dog and maybe 
promotes more responsible ownership. I like you, if I had a dog that did attack, I would probably want to follow those behavioral steps uh, with Mm -hmm. a veterinarian, something that could help my dog get better and continue with a muzzle just because I don't want to have an incident like that again. It'd be too stressful. Right. Um, He did not talk about that, about if that would be something that would be continued on in this motion, uh, muzzling. But I think what he really wants to see is this this um, putting getting a, an owner and a, an aggressive dog into some sort of treatment, quote unquote, <laughs> for the dog. And what I found was really interesting is that Councillor Fry told me that out of the ten people on City Council, the ten councillors, only three of them have dogs. Hmm. And he said that um, his uh, he is one of them, and his right. experience on, owning his uh, previous dog is what inspired him to put forth this motion. But my previous dog, she was a third hand rescue. By the time we got her, she'd been adopted twice, returned twice. And she came with a lot of baggage, and she actually got into a couple of fights where she did some damage to other dogs. And I was super stressed and, you know, worried about the fact that I might have an aggressive dog. And I worked with my veterinarian, and he referred me to a behaviorist. And behaviorist assured me, your dog's not aggressive, she's reactive, and she's got fear-based trauma, and blah, 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 blah. And here's how we're going to work on it. And she gave me a training regimen, and I followed it. And uh, by the end of it, Ruby was a fantastic dog. And she lived out the rest of her days as an awesome dog who was very disciplined and loving and just a great dog. Had I not, you know, sort of paid the vet bills of the other dogs and like worked proactively to address, she could have been designated, deemed an aggressive dog and she would have had a miserable life for the remaining 10 years that I had her. But instead, I was given this opportunity uh, just through the circumstances I found myself in to actually follow an appropriate training regimen that allowed her to to get past her own baggage. I get that, but I also do think, and as a dog owner, if your dog has been aggressive, Mm -hmm. bit another dog, bit another person, even if your animal behaviorist or your vet says, yes, this dog is rehabilitated, it's not going to happen again, how do you know 100%? I think that's what this motion will come down to, is like animal welfare versus public safety, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so, and I know when I was talking to Counselor Fry, he said that his dog didn't, um, it it seemed from what he was explaining to me that his dog did not need a muzzle after he visited a behaviorist and a vet. Um, You know, people might feel differently though they might think that you don't get a second chance if you do bite somebody you should wear if a dog bites someone you should it should be wearing a muzzle um so uh counselor fry also told me that this motion which he has put forward with counselor michael weeb will start a conversation about uh, vancouver's animal control bylaw which he mentioned earlier hasn't really been updated in any serious way uh in approximately 40 years Councillor weeb and i both are looking towards a larger strategy a more long-term strategy around animal animal control and uh one of the things that strikes me is that we, I look at other jurisdictions like Calgary has a, has a fantastic animal control program. They have zero tolerance for dogs that aren't licensed. Uh, they have a very assertive animal control, but they also have a lot of off-leash areas, like 200 off-leash areas in the city of Calgary. And they also have a very thorough education program so that you get a dog and you also are obliged to learn how to train a dog. And this is through no fault of our own animal control office. I think it's just that this hasn't been a priority in the past. And I think Councillor Weeb and I both see an opportunity to have a much more robust conversation around responsibility of, of pet guardianship and the, the benefits of pet guardianship, but also the responsibilities that come with it. And especially as we have an increasingly dense city uh, and an increasing population of, of pets. And how do we reconcile those and uh, make for just a better experience for everyone? All right, so where do we go from here? Well, that's uh, we'll see what happens today at, at uh, today's city council meeting. What I think is really interesting is that Vancouver's, uh, the city's current uh, aggressive dog bylaw is similar to bylaws 
uh, in place in municipalities like Surrey and Burnaby. So, you know, if this motion does pass and there is a, we change the way that we deal with aggressive dogs, I would be really interested to see if, if it impacts other municipalities and the way they deal with aggressive dogs, because they seem to be all very similar with muzzles, isolation, stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And uh, we should be hearing pretty soon if that motion was passed. It's called Amazon Go Grocery, and it means you won't have to stand in line and hear this. Instead, shoppers would scan a smartphone app to enter the store. Cameras and sensors track what's taken off the shelves, and items are charged to an Amazon account after leaving. Families can shop together with just one phone scanning everyone in, but shoppers shouldn't help a stranger reach for something from the top shelf. Amazon warns that grabbing an item for someone else means you'll be charged for it. The first store has opened in Seattle, which is home to the online retailing giant. All right, that uh, report sums up uh, the latest developments in Amazon and this move to a cashier-less supermarket uh, that's happening in Seattle. How do we feel about this in Canada? If your responses to our hot question of the day are any indication, uh, well, the people that responded, a lot of them say they either reluctantly use the self-serve checkout or they don't use it at all. My guess is the people that don't use the checkouts probably aren't going to shop at a store like this. Well, let's bring in Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy and Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Halifax's Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. What is your response to this latest move by Amazon? Well, it's been, it's been uh, going on for quite some time. Uh, you, we actually have seen Amazon go stores all over the U.S., uh, they actually are planning to open 3,000 stores like this in, uh, in the United States. The difference with this one, uh, which opened today in Seattle, is it's basically a full-blown grocery store. Other Amazon Go stores were smaller, more like convenience stores. This one is basically the same as if you, were go, you would go to any uh, grocery stores in uh, in your area, basically, with uh, produce, meat, uh, groceries, everything you need is there. And, of course, as you go through your shopping list, you can just grab what you need, and you don't have to worry about cashiers or waiting in line, which is, as far as I'm concerned, the worst part that was managed by grocers for the longest time. Now, Amazon Gall gets rid of you waiting in line to pay for your own food, You just can walk away. Which I think resonates with people, right? It's not this idea of of picking between the cashier line or the self-serve checkout. We just want the one that's the fastest. That doesn't mean you have to stand in line for 20 minutes. Exactly. And I I can see, (laughs) I can hear your listeners going through their strategy of looking for people in training. You don't take that aisle because it may take longer or you may actually end up with uh, in a line where someone is, lower than usual, for example. So you have to strategize as you try to exit your grocery store as soon as possible because, well, you probably have some people at home who are hungry or you're on a way to, to go somewhere else. Uh, we're always in a hurry. And and to shop for groceries is a chore. And some, some people actually just don't like it. I actually enjoy it myself. But the part I've never liked, and I think that I speak for a lot of people, is the wait to pay. That's, that is the worst. 
Absolutely. So is this latest store idea, like you said, it's the first full grocery store. Is this the way of the future? I think so. When I see Amazon Go, what I see is, is AI at retail. So using artificial intelligence to not only uh, make our lives more convenient, but they're going to be learning about us as well. Don't, don't, don't get this wrong. They actually are going to collect a lot of data about our behavior in store so they can actually work better on their merchandising, how the store is designed, what promotions they'll, they'll actually uh, put forward. Those type of issues uh, are grocers' nightmare. They never know what brand is more popular, who's hesitating in front of which brand, which brand did you grab but didn't buy. Those types of things are data, very precious data for grocers, and this is really what's happening right now in the grocery business. And Amazon Go is ahead of everyone else. The one company in Canada that is looking at this very seriously is Solbase with its pilot at Oakville, Ontario, with the sharp, with the uh, with the uh, project called the Smart Cart. Right. So is this, do you think, because I think a lot of people agree, and I would put myself in that camp too. I actually like grocery shopping. I don't like standing in line, and I don't like making small talk with strangers either, which sometimes you do. Is this then leapfrogging from home delivery? Because home delivery also eliminates the lineup and eliminates the having to go and do the chore itself. They just show up at your door. Yeah, no, that's true, of course. Uh, but you do pay extra for that service. And, of course, you may end up ordering for someone else. The, the e-commerce absolutely is a response to the Amazon threat. And I suspect that grocers will look at uh, will look at Amazon Go as another wake-up call. And that's why we're starting to see Walmart, Loblaws looking into that space uh, much more seriously because they know that people are just after convenience. But with all this technology, the question mark is very simple. Who's going to pay for all that? Uh, at the end of the day, with the Amazon Go system, you have uh, more than 2 million sensors in the store, you have high technology providing us with convenience, but that comes at a cost. Someone has to pay for that, and someone has to maintain uh, the system, and of course, someone has to manage the data. So that comes all at a cost, and in return, I suspect we're going to have to pay for it a little bit. That's why grocers are starting to look at different ways to capture data, provide us with convenience, but with not, not that amount, not that kind of cost, because Amazon Go is a really, really expensive model. Hmm. Because that's what people are also questioning, is if you're eliminating all of these jobs of cashiers, and, well, I suppose it's, it's mainly the cashier's jobs, then is there not a cost savings there? And people are saying, well, if I'm going to bag my own groceries, or if I'm going to do all the work, it should be less expensive to do that. Uh, they're selling our data or doing whatever they are with our data. Data is very valuable. It does seem like consumers would expect some kind of cost benefit. Oh, absolutely. And I know a lot of people are concerned about jobs in grocery stores, but if you actually take some time to talk to a manager, they'll tell you it's very hard now to hire for these positions. Uh, they're very repetitive. They're close to, to a uh, opening door to the outside. Sometimes it gets cold. Uh, you deal with co consumers that aren't necessarily always in a good mood. Uh, it, it's a job. These are jobs that are hard to fill. And Sometimes they just don't show up on time, and you, you go through HR headaches. 
that's why self-checkouts and, of course, the Amazon Go model is very attractive because you can actually, you can allow grocers to save money and provide convenience to people. All right. Well, it's a very interesting uh, development, and we'll see what happens uh, in Canada as well. Sylvain Charlebois, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, Sylvain is a professor in food distribution and policy, senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Halifax's Dalhousie University. All right, we have a bit of a theme going this half hour. Just before the break, CKNW contributor and proud dog owner, lover Claire Allen, was here talking about the motion at Vancouver City Council today having to do with aggressive dogs and whether or not changes need to be made to the bylaw that currently exists in Vancouver. Hasn't been changed for quite some time. We're going to shift gears a little bit and bring in V. Victoria Schroff, who's an animal lawyer, and she joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about pet insurance. So, Victoria, thank you so much for being with us again. Good afternoon, Jill. I'm happy to talk about either topic. Well, let's start with what Claire was just talking about, because you and I were talking about this on the weekend as well. And you had actually reached out to Councillor Fry with concerns about the fact that the motion talked about an animal behaviorist, but it didn't talk about a veterinarian. As far as you know, has anything changed? Um, yeah, I understand that an amendment has been put forth. I spoke with um, Councillor Fry again yesterday evening at about 5.30. I haven't seen the amendment. It's gone to Council and Mayor. And um, I am on the speaker's list to address further concerns relating to how these assessments are done and by whom. All right, so that's a positive uh, of update in that for sure. Yeah, yeah, but I, I have to wait till I see the exact wording. So, so I'm, I'm hopeful because I am very much for the motion. It's just a question of, of getting it correct so that it is good for um, both sides of the leash. Absolutely. The, the person and the dog and the, and the public, of course, and safety. Absolutely. We'll uh, continue following that and see what happens with that motion at Council. Let's talk about this other story. Uh, Andrew, who is a consumer reporter at Global BC, uh, was looking at the issue of pet insurance. And I know that you were one of the voices uh, talking about this as well. What are your concerns or issues when it comes to pet insurance? Well, the reason why I never get invited to the pet insurance picnics every year is because the insurance company is going to give you an umbrella when it's sunny and then take it away when it's raining. I think that people sign up for pet insurance thinking that, oh, I'm covered. This is going to be great. If I ever have um, a really big medical expense that's coming up for my cat or dog or other animal, I'm going to be covered. And they feel like it's a sense of security. Uh, but in reality, when even though it's bought for peace of mind, it rarely turns out that way. So is it a better, and I know Anne talked to somebody who felt he had been paying these premiums, they kept going up, and he was being declined when he was trying to make claims. Is it better than if you're somebody who loves pets, pets are part of your family, is it better, do you think, than to do it on your own? Absolutely, and this is what I recommended um, to Anne and to her viewers, was that essentially if you self-insure and you put 50 or $80 per pet into a fund that you don't touch, but you continue to faithfully put money in every month at the end of the day you're going to have a very nice amount of money to self-insure if a disaster comes up and you have a big medical bill to pay for your pet are there any cases do you think where where it is useful if you have a pet that perhaps uh, develops a chronic condition or develops something because veterinary veterinary bills can be extremely expensive I, i'm just thinking i remember talking to somebody at can west and it was a bizarre case i think it was one of the first dogs that got uh, a blood transfusion and it was a twenty thousand dollar or twenty five thousand dollar 
procedure that was covered partially by insurance. And I remember the owner saying, thank goodness for the insurance, because without it, I wouldn't have been able to afford this bill. Are, are there cases, do you think, where it does work? Absolutely. No, I, I'd say it does work, um, but it's rare. So, And especially, you also have to understand that I get the cases as an animal law lawyer for the cases that don't work, you know, that where insurance has been denied. But that isn't to say it never works. When I've done a straw poll amongst my friends and other clients, some of them, I'd say about, you know, 5 or 10% of them say they're faithful to their pet insurance and they would buy it again. Um, but again, that's, to me, it's been a rarity. Right. And, and I think it goes down or, or probably is like anything, whether it's insurance or travel plans, what have you, read the fine print. Read the fine print. Go beyond the glossy brochure. I cannot stress that enough. People see this brochure. It's two pages long and they think, well, that's for me. That's going to work out. But it doesn't necessarily. I'd say in the majority of cases it doesn't because what happens is that people don't understand how pre-existing claims can be denied. And so they think, well, well, I didn't know about that. Um, and so it's also a really good idea to see your vet and have a conference with your vet about what medical conditions are likely to come up in your breed of animal and what existing conditions your pet already has because you might be paying into a policy where you're never going to see a dime. And I guess that comes into play too, is do you insure your pet, if you're somebody that wants to do that, do you insure your pet when your pet is a puppy or a young animal, or do you wait and then run the risk of, like you said, a pre-existing condition or something, so either you can't get insurance or it's much more expensive? Absolutely, at a young age, if you are going to go for it, I would say. Um, But I also think that's where you start with the self-insuring as well. Um, As soon as you get your pet, you have to be financially responsible for your pet. You are their guardian. They look to you for all their needs. And um, before you have a pet, you better consider all of these things. And this is just one factor. Um, But, you know, I think this is something that can definitely be worked out with, um, uh, you know, looking at a policy carefully, discussing it with your vet, and then moving forward. And if you decide to go for it, then you do it with your eyes open. That's all I can say is do your due diligence. Absolutely. And uh, something you mentioned there, too, you get the cases when it doesn't work out or when someone feels they've been uh, taken advantage of or didn't get it. So you must see the worst of the worst. I see some of it. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, I mean, I've also done some work uh, on the preventative side. Sometimes people have come to me with their policies and they say, I can't make heads or tails of this, but I know I'm going to be paying around eight or nine thousand dollars for the life of my pet if I buy this policy. Um, would you have a look at it? And so there can be sort of upfront measures that can be taken like that as well. Um, Because, I mean, I've had cases where somebody um, told me that they had their German Shepherd with hip dysplasia and the the pet insurance company covered one side. And so, I mean, this is not helpful. This dog was walking around with a limp for the rest of its life because it was was incredibly expensive. And these owners, again, they thought that they had... um, you know, peace of mind by paying into a policy that wasn't going to cover them. All right. Good advice. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, V. Victoria Schroff, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. All right. Uh, Victoria is an animal lawyer, also adjunct professor, uh, professor at the Allard School of Law at UBC.